you can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome. I got my mojo. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the seventh season of the Mojo Radio Show. If you're a regular listener, welcome back on board the Big Red Bus. We've come to know as the Mojo Radio Show. If you're on the bus for the first time, welcome. Nice to have you here. You're probably wondering what is all this about. Well, we just find interesting people that we can talk to, extract their tips, their tools, what they're thinking, what they do to get their mojo working and try and uncover all that so we can apply it to our own world or perhaps just as importantly, or some would say more importantly, find somebody that you can share this stuff with to help them get their own mojo working. Firstly, to start the year off, a huge thanks to all our Patreon supporters who keep the petrol in the bus, keep us fueled up, keep the tyres inflated. You've been a great support to us. We've got a fantastic troop of people who support us week in, week out through Patreon. If you are liking what you hear and you want to do the right thing and support us because we don't have any advertising, sadly, no sponsors, very sadly. Uh, go to Patreon, just search The Mojo Radio Show. You'll see a bunch of tabs there. There's loads of rewards, which we won't bore you with. But uh, if you're on board already, thank you, guys. Speaking of the big red bus, our driver has got his <laughs> Captain Stubing hat on. Uh, Robbo, another week. Week, year seven. I know. Can you believe it? Year seven. So, uh Tis, tis the start of the season, which means we're getting into footy season. Are the boys lacing up this year? Uh, yeah, Jack, Jack's getting ready. They, uh, he's playing Opens this year, believe it or not. So that's under 17s and 18s combined. Uh, he's playing Opens. And, yeah, Liam's strapping the boots on for under 15s this year. So um, Playing with the big boys. Time to get knocked around. Boys, indeed. All right. Well, good luck to the boys this season. Let's start the show. Remarkable fact. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. We talked about Elton John last week. I've got two remarkable facts about Elton John that I didn't know and people may find interesting. Did you know that Elton John's never had a piano lesson? Didn't know, did not know that. Yeah, it seems that he was actually a bit of a musical prodigy from a very young age. At the age of three, uh, he taught himself to play the skater's waltz after learning it by ear. And that innate talent for music earned him a scholarship at the Royal Academy of Music in London at the age of 11. He quit there at the age of 17 because, in his words, he was bored and went out and started creating commercial music. He's also, just, just, just on that, he's also very, it must be very auditory because to pick it up by ear and play and he does the same thing when he writes with, Bernie Torpen, he says he gives him a lyric and he just starts tinkering. He can he can hear and see the see the music in his head. Mm. And something else people may not know is that he buys, I think it's every every day or every week, he buys new music yes. of undiscovered artists. And the kid who supported him on his recent Australian leg of his world tour was a kid that he heard on the radio one night on Triple J in their Unearth program. And he rang this kid and said, hi, it's Elton John. The kid hung up on him because he thought someone was <laughs> crying. 
And thankfully, Elton rang back. Well, but he also buys them on CD. Did you know this? He buys them on CD, but he doesn't buy one copy. He buys, I think it's four copies, one for every house that he owns around the world. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? He's just, he's really switched on guy. And here's, here's another cool one about Elton. He names his pianos after female singers. He's not shy about showing them off either. For a 2011 tour, he bought himself a Yamaha that took four years to construct and featured a series of LED screens that could display images and video footage that reacted to the rhythm of what he was playing. It cost him $1.3 million and he dubbed it Blossom after jazz singer Blossom Deary. He's named most of his pianos after female singers, including instruments for Aretha Franklin, Nina Simone and Diana Kral. So there you go. Well, anybody who's listening who is into their pianos, Roland have just released their piano of the future. And it, lo- it looks really futurist. I mean, if you think of what a typical, we can all visualise a piano, this is all triangles and really sharp angles. And they have embedded an LED screen wow. into the top of it that reacts to the keys and you can actually project onto it. So it's very, very futuristic, which is, I guess, them bit of marketing warfare that if Yamaha did it as a one-off, mm. Roland have seen it, mapped the battlefield, decided there could be something mm. in it, and they're deciding to do it to themselves before somebody else does it to them. So I think they're commercialising it at the end of 2020, I think. Wow. We have to get one for the studio then. And then learn how to play it. Yeah. <laughs> this, hey, this is Elton John, is the Mojo Radio Show. All right. Our guest this week is a guy called David Allen. Now, David Allen for those who may not be familiar with the name, is considered by many to be the king of productivity. And he's best known as a creator of a time management method called getting things done, or as those in the know call it GTD. And getting things done has become the basis of not only people who adopt David's process, but also people like who invented the bullet journal have taken the essence or the basis of GTD and then applied it to their own system. David spent, as you'll hear, three decades researching, teaching, and coaching all all in the area of productivity, and he's recognised very widely as one of the top executives by Forbes and one of the top 100 thought leaders by Leadership Magazine. So with all that being said, David, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. When you meet somebody for the first time, and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Well, it depends on who they are and why they're asking and, you know, what the context is. Um, I usually just, you know, give them some current reality stuff. I, don't, I try not to be too much of a promoter in that regard. You know, I could say, well, what I do is I, I um, you know, discovered and, and promote a process that allows people to be very clear in, in, in their head and stay focused on meaningful stuff and minimize distraction and stress. So that's kind of the, I suppose, the elevator pitch in terms of what I came up with. You know, the recurrent reality is, well, you know, I uh, spent 35, last 35 years developing, uh, discovering and developing best practices about how do you surf on top of your world instead of feel buried by it. And then after 25 years, found out that, you know, what I discovered was unique and that it was bulletproof. So I figured I'd better write the book. So I wrote Getting Things Done and it became an international bestseller. And now we're attempting to scale that education and coaching work uh, around the world. So there's another version of the answer. It's something that I really 
when we strip it back, being Australian guys, we'd like to strip things back. But you said you are a self-proclaimed lazy guy and you wanted to make life easier, to have more time to do whatever. That was kind of the genesis of getting things done, wasn't it? Well, I don't know if it was the genesis of it. It's probably why I resonated with these best practices because, you know, lazy and efficient, you could almost translate those as one or the other. I hate wasting time and being distracted about stuff that I can't do anything about. I'm a freedom kind of guy. So uh, I suppose, you know, it's it's sort of like you're, you're most creative when you have the freedom to make a mess, but if you're in a mess, you can't make one. So I'm not a naturally organized guy. I just discovered years ago that it's really nice to, you know, have a clear, clean deck so that you are much freer to do the kind of stuff you want to do with a lot more cognitive bandwidth. So, yeah, so you could call that lazy and call it however you want that. You know, I just kind of make a joke about it being being lazy because a lot of people think productivity means harder work, sweat, more, faster, better, bigger. And it could you know, to some degree, if that's your game. Uh, But productivity simply means achieving desired experiences and results. So if you go to a party to boogie and you don't boogie, that's an unproductive party. But most people don't consider productivity in that sort of light. And so it's got a good bit of baggage around it. That's why I kind of tend to lighten it up by saying, hey, guys, this is not about necessarily working harder, faster, bigger. Mm. It's really about being appropriately engaged with your life and all your commitments in your life so that you're not distracted. And you're present with whatever you're doing, which is the most productive and healthy state to operate from. You've talked about the fact that it's a complex world, but what you have is not a complex model. And before we go into the model itself, what I was interested in is you said that at a young age you were drawn to models, which is an odd thing to hear somebody say. What what was the attraction to models? I don't know. I suppose it's the efficiency or the, 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 the lazy part of me that says, well, wouldn't it be nice if you could do A, B, and C and come up with a D as opposed to fumble around and hope some D shows up? <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, I kind of like formulaic things where you can test the formula and actually use the formula. So you're not wasting time and you're, you know, most efficiently and effectively organizing your attention and your resources. Where do you remember this starting, David? How far back can you remember that starting in your life? Because you, it's very evident now. Can you remember as a kid growing up or as a teenager, where did it start? I don't know. It's a good question. As I think back, I say, well, my first career was a magician doing magic tricks on the sidewalk in Palestine, Texas, when I was five years old for five cents. So I kind of had figured out kind of, well, at least how to do that. And I always, you know, I was good at math in school and, you know, one of, you know, several of my jobs, I was a cashier in a, in a supermarket and I kind of like adding things up and having things add up. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I've just always been somewhat attracted to, uh, that, that kind of, um, uh, coherent structure, if you will, about whatever I was doing. I learned to play chess when I was five or six years old. I learned to play Go, you know, the Japanese board game uh, as a teenager. And I've always loved those kinds of things. And so kind of fill in the blanks, but nice to have models to, to use for that. There's a, a, a power and a beauty in the simplicity of how you talk about this. In a world that productivity people with 
apps and processes and systems. They, they want to make it sound like this this breakthrough thing, but having seen and heard a lot of your stuff, there's a, a beauty and a simplicity in the model you've created. Is that something that's intrinsic in your world? David, are you drawn to simplicity and minimalism? I, actually, I am, just aesthetically. Uh, you know, I read all of Suzuki and Alan Watts, you know, Zen stuff and when I was in high school. And, you know, I've, two of my hobbies, one was raising bonsai plants and doing that. And another, which I still do, is ikebana, which is Japanese flower arranging. So I've, and my wife and I are Japanophiles. We love minimalist, you know, Japanese, the Japanese aesthetic in that regard. So I don't, I, I suppose that informed you know, my interest in, you know, no, nothing extraneous is needed and there's power and simplicity and kind of the magic and the mundane, if you will, kind of the, the elegance of ordinariness, another way to think about that. So I've always, always been attracted to, to that style or that dynamic, I suppose. This is I hadn't really thought about going on this little off-ramp here, but at what point did martial arts enter your world? Was it when, were you already into Japan, the simplicity, the beauty of the Japanese way of minimalism? Were you already into that when you found martial arts? Was martial arts a, an avenue into that? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that, was, that was actually my attraction to the martial arts. I wound up meeting a guy who became a very good friend and a, really a, a mentor of sorts for me about a lot of things. And uh, he offered to teach me karate. He saw that I was very interested in that kind of stuff. And I was attracted to the aesthetic of it. I said, I'm martial art. Hmm. You know, I'm not a fighter kind of guy. I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I avoid conflict at all costs. Uh, so, <clears throat> but I was fascinated by a martial art that had to do, uh, apparently had a lot to do with what the Zen style was or the Zen uh, practices were. So that's why I got into it. It turns out that once I got into it, I really liked hitting stuff. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I actually enjoyed the, 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 the experience of a sort of, you know, personal effectiveness and efficiency. And, you know, my, my uh, teacher in the martial arts uh, was very attracted to and, 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 you know, our work was probably closer to Bruce Lee's, what they called Jeet Kune Do, became a, you know, Bruce Lee's martial art. And Bruce was simply just into efficiency with how little effort you could generate, how much power. And so, you know, that was attractive to me just to see how to do that. And, uh, you know, discovered a lot of stuff about focus, discovered a lot of stuff about being able to be relaxed and how critical that was to be able to deal with strenuous stuff. So there were a lot of things I learned in the four or five years that I, you know, pretty intensively studied uh, karate. Here's another off-ramp. If we stay on the Bruce Lee Jeet Kune Do off-ramp, he talked about it's not the daily addition, it's the daily subtraction. Hack away at the unessentials. Is there something you can think of in the last 100 days as the productivity guy, the GTD guy that you have taken out of your world, hacked away at, that's had a profound... I don't know if it's a profound impact, but one of my big projects right now is learning Dutch. And boy, talk about a <laughs> Alzheimer prevention is trying to learn uh, <laughs> that language. And, uh, and I, one of the things I discovered, I read a great book recently. Uh, it's called Fluent Forever by a guy who basically, you know, has uncovered the fastest way to learn languages, which is the way kids learn languages, you know, without a whole lot of rules and without a whole lot of structure to begin with, but mostly just learning to see things and name them. 
And so uh, getting rid of essentially having to do a lot of repetition, you know, he uses a style called, oh, God, the, the, I forget, SRS, I forget exactly what it stands for, but it basically it's staged recall. So you actually learn things and memorize things best when you're just about to forget them, you're reminded of them. So, you know, got a piece of software that, you know, I've got that I do use flashcards and it, you know, and so it, so essentially it, it's a, a more of a minimalist way to learn a language that I, I can't say that is life changing, but it's certainly uh, practical <laughs> at least, uh, you know, and, and kind of fun, you know, to do so that as you, you mentioned that, that's just what pops into my, my head. But otherwise my life is, come on guys, I'll be 74 and, you know, in a month or so. And, you know, by this point, um, I kind of been around the block a lot. And so, you know, ease and simplicity and elegance of that sort is just sort of uh, my natural style these days. Is that a nice word to think at that stage of life to be elegant, have an elegant stage of life? That's cool. Are you are you going out in Amsterdam and putting the work from Fluent Forever into place? Do you go out and not speak English, so to speak, do you go out then and force yourself to bring that new language to life? Because it's actually, there's a lot of science behind the fact that learning a language is great for creativity and great for mental stimulation, regardless of what age. I'm just curious, how far do you push yourself? Do you actually go into the streets and not speak English and force yourself to use what you learn? I try, but you know, if you've ever been to Amsterdam, it's so hard here because all the Dutch speak English so well. As soon as they hear you fumble, they, they go right to English and speak it as well as I do. You know, so, you know, you know we, my wife and I joke that we could probably learn the language a lot faster if we got divorced and each married a Dutch person, you know, <laughs> so it, it would sort of, it would force the issue, but, you know, so it's one of those, yeah, I try to do it as we speak kind of market Dutch, you know, so we know how to buy things and count things and, and do all that. But, uh, yeah, it's a day by day process and we're, we're going to try to spend a good bit more focused time on it than again, the coming year. It's funny, I heard somebody interviewed recently, David, and this is another off-ramp, and they talked about language and how the French are very unforgiving. That If you have a crack at the French and don't get it, they will frown upon you and embarrass you. Whereas with the Japanese, even if you have a crack at it and don't get it right, they embrace you and almost hug you and encourage you to have a crack at it. And I just find it interesting talking to you about the Dutch and how language fits into this. And I think the fact of learning, I, I would always, I, I personally have always wanted to learn another language. My wife speaks a few, but I think fluent forever. I will be looking that up uh, online. That's good. Uh, explain to me your head office. Well, the head office is most people <clears throat> are trying to manage their life in their head. But as I say, it's kind of like uh, playing an old bad pinball machine. Stuff just keeps banging around, going in the wrong holes and, you know, <laughs> and, and reverberating and making noise <laughs> in there. And that's pretty much the way your brain works because it didn't evolve to remember, remind, or prioritize or manage relationships between more than four things. And that's, you know, it, it didn't evolve to do, it evolved to do some very cool stuff, which is long-term memory and pattern recognition. So you can recognize tigers and thunderstorms and berries to eat and things like that. But that's a very present tense thing. You know, the forebrain, you know, as that developed, that has past and future and you can do plans and you can remember and you can remind, but it didn't really evolve to do that very well, you know, out of the present. So if, as soon as you have stuff you can't finish when you think of it, most people are still trying to keep that in their head. And it's just a really crappy office. 
It just doesn't work very well. You tend to be driven by latest and loudest if that's the only place that you've got. So anybody listening to this who manages a calendar or diary is already admitting that their head can't do it, that they need some external brain, essentially, or external placeholder for those kinds of things so that your mind gets to relax and do what it does much better, which is make choices off which thing I want in my calendar I want to do, what thing off my list should I pick that I want to do today, which errands should I run. So of these six things I've decided I need to talk to my wife about, what are the key ones that I want to bring up at dinner? So that's what your that's what your mind is good for is making choices off your options, but not to try to either figure out what the options are, or or to to make choices or to remember them. You know, actually, your mind is good for deciding what the options are, but most people don't use their mind for that process. They just have stuff banging around in their head. Oh, I bank. Oh, mom. Oh, tooth. Oh, vice president. Oh, change in the culture. Oh, yada yada yada. And that stuff banging around in there is just not making any progress on it. It's just adding stress to your life. In reading the book, listening to you speak about it, my intention with this show is not to give people a prescriptive description of getting things done, GTD, because there are many, many resources for that. My intention is to give people the desire and the motivation and the push to get on board this train at its, if we go back to the the beautiful simplicity of how powerful this is and how it is changing people's world. And we'll talk about that as we go through the, the interview. In its most simplistic form, David, is it fair to say that getting things done is about making room and we need more room in our, in our minds? Well, that's certainly the end result of it is creating more room. Uh, It's, it's really, you know, everybody's up to their gills, you know, with stuff, you know, very few people have a lot of space to just do nothing. And now, particularly these days in the last 10 years or so, all the, all the cognitive science research that's shown up that said, excuse me, your brain had better rest. The cognitive process, especially the forebrain process is, is you have only have a limited amount that you can do. It's like a muscle that you need to actually it needs to recoup recoup itself. That's why sleep is a master recuperation for your brain. But even daydreaming and just uh, stopping your focus and being able to sort of unfocus and um, you know and be spontaneous with your thinking process is really quite healthy. Uh, so you know, and now you know now they know that most adults, probably ninety five percent of most adults. There are exceptions, but most adults need, you know, seven, eight, nine hours of sleep a night to optimize their cognitive process. And so, yeah, so the, 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 the idea of creating room is really more about taking away the pressure of your mind from doing stuff it doesn't do well at all. So it gives you room to be creative, to be spontaneous, to, to follow your intuitive, intelligent, intuitive hunches. I think that's where success comes from. You know, uh, I, you know, probably, I don't know, 50 to 80% of what I do in my life is not on any of my list and not in my system. I do it spontaneously, but I have the freedom to do that because I have a system. So I know, I, I know what I'm not doing and that's okay. That gives me the freedom to do something else. Uh, most people go to do something else because they hope that's the right thing to do, or they just want to avoid all the other stuff they're not wanting to think about. So I just finished my thinking <laughs> you know, about all that stuff park the results in a good trusted place so I know I can come back to it when I need to. And that gives me a lot more freedom and a lot more space. 
do whatever it is that I happen to feel like doing in the moment. You said you've trained yourself to just get things down, and I know you carry a notebook in your back pocket. Take us through the emptying of your mind to get things down that you've trained yourself to do, which we can all train ourselves to do. Take us through your process, your model for how David does that to give us an idea of how GTD works. Sure. Well, at any point in time, again, I have a little pocket wallet that's got a great little pen and, you know, a notepad in it. And, you know, the strangest things show up at the strangest times out there. And so I grab them. I probably throw away 80 or 90% of them. You know, I think there may be a good idea when I have it, but later on I go, what a dumb idea. They would come on too much wine or whatever. You know, what a dumb idea, but I don't miss any good ones. So all of those things are captured. If I'm just running around, walking around, oftentimes I don't even take a, a, a phone, you know, unless I just want a camera with me. But for the most part, my capture tool is low tech, is pen and paper. You don't need to click anything. You don't, there are no batteries, no Wi-Fi required, none of that. It's instant. And a lot of that stuff, you better grab instant because it comes fast. Boy, the muse can be so fickle. You know, that thought pops in and suddenly it's gone. And you think what it's while you're having the thought, it's brilliant. You'll never forget it. And then two minutes later, you forgot you forgot it. You know, it, it can go fast. So learning to, so that's what, if you, if you followed me around in my life, uh, you'd see me at random moments pull out my little wallet. If I'm not sitting at my desk, at my desk, I have a pen and paper sitting in front of me all the time, just because who knows when the lightning may strike at any point in time. And many times I'm on something like this, you know, a podcast or a virtual meeting or reading an email, and I suddenly think of something else right then. I just grab that pen and write it on that little scrap of paper, and then I'll throw that scrap of paper into my physical in-tray, which I'm also staring at right now, because that are those are then placeholders, because that physical in-tray then is kind of like the ultimate, the ultimate um, sort of collection box that... You know, if I don't process and organize or manage or do, you know, the things that show up in my head in the process, I've got some sort of a placeholder, usually low tech, and I just throw that right into that entry. Now, we all have digital entries, like stuff showing up in email or in social media and other places like that, which, are, which serve you know, essentially the same kind of function. You know, I could email myself stuff if I wanted to, or I could, you know, leave a voice message for myself in my own system. Any and all of those things work as long as I get it out of my head and dump it someplace that I know I'm going to empty sooner than later by going through and, you know, stage two and three of clarifying and organizing what's in there. So that's the, that's what it would look like. You'd see me, you know, with these tools that are around all the time and, you know, coming after do, I've been doing this for 35 plus years. So I don't need to sit down all at once and try to empty my head. My head just stays empty most of the time simply by just making that a habitual process. So that's, yeah, that's, that's what the capture process is. But then, of course, as you know, that you can't just leave it there. Otherwise, you become just a, you know, a compulsive list maker and, you know, collector of piles of stuff, you know, which is that's, that's not going to help either. You ultimately have to move these things, you know, through the system. Can I just pick up on something you said there? Does that mean your inbox becomes your to-do list from the way you were explaining no. that? No. The inbox is a place to hold stuff that may generate things that may go on a to-do list. But junk mail doesn't label itself as junk mail. Have you noticed? Yes. Well, sometimes sometimes the subject line's a bit of a giveaway, but not very often. 
it's just mail. It's just mail. So you have to pick it up and then decide, is that junk mail or is that something I actually want to do something about? So no, it's not up to, that's not, that's what the, most people make that mistake. They actually uh, think that stage one is stage three. They think that collecting is organizing. It's not. That's like, that's like assuming you're doing something with every meeting note you take. No, you're not. You need to go back through those meeting notes and say, wait a minute, that's trash, or I don't need that anymore, or that's reference I'm going to keep out. Oh, yeah, that reminds me I need to. And so the raw data and the raw capture is what, you, is what goes into you know, the, the capturing buckets. And that could, be, that could be anything. It could be trash. It could be junk mail. It could be whatever. But it's still stuff that I still then know that I need to decide something about. Now, you could make those decisions instantly. You can just pick up the mail out of your mailbox and just toss the junk mail you know, immediately in the trash. You know, or shred it or do whatever you do with it, recycle it. But that's, you know, but for the most part, I need the freedom to be able to then grab anything that is potentially meaningful to me. I don't know what exactly it means to me yet, but it might mean something that I might want to decide or do something about. And that's the stuff I want to capture. And, you know, if we're, if I were coaching somebody to begin with, that would, that would, that process would take one to six hours just to get everything that's got their attention out of their head. I tie a few things together here, David, you tweeted, thinking is easy, acting is difficult, and to put one's thoughts into action is the most difficult thing in the world, which is a quote you put in there by Goeth. The military talk about prioritise and execute, and is your observation that we're better at prioritising this stuff collecting this stuff, but then not executing. So to Robbo's point, are we not emphasizing the done bit enough? You've got this tray full of ideas, some random, some valuable, who knows? You've you've captured. My question is how do you turn that, prioritize that into things that you will execute? It just seems that there is this missing piece in the world today where not enough stuff is being talked about but not getting done. Hugely. Yeah, and that's step step two of the five step process of getting things done, is the clarification process. Once I pick up that note, once I open that email, then I need to make some decisions about it, and that's where you actually have to think. You actually have to think: what is this? You know, and is it an actionable item? There are two optional answers: yes or no. A lot of things are non-actionable. Two of which you actually keep. One is trash; you just throw that away. I don't need it, or now that I've seen it, I don't need it. But you might want to keep stuff that you probably do want to keep stuff just for reference material. No action on that, but I need to be able to have access to it later on. So that's reference. And then some stuff you look at, you go, hmm, you know, I can't decide on that right now. I need to wait for a couple of weeks because I got other things pending and then I'll relook at it. That's incubate or on hold. So those are the three categories of non-actionable things. But you have to make that decision. By the way, even just the simple thing, is it actionable or not? If you look at most people's in-tray in their email, they have not made that decision about tons of stuff staring them in the face. Which ones of those emails are you actually going to do something or have to do something about? Which ones are just trash or reference or you know, on hold for later review? So just that simple thought process is one that's very lacking out there for most people. Now then the, big, the biggie on that is if it is an actionable item, you're like, come on guys, I'm going to give you a big secret. This big secret to getting things done defining what done means and what doing looks like and where it happens, right? 
And those are two things most people actually avoid, like the plague about all kinds of things. What does done mean about mom and her elder care? What does done mean about that tooth that you, that hurts? What does done mean about whether your kids are going to take karate lessons or not? What does done mean about their vacation? What does done mean about should I get divorced or not? You know, my God, there's so many things people have that are you know grabbing their attention, and they haven't yet de- determined or defined very clearly what the desired outcome of the thing really is. Is it to research it? Is it to finalize it? Is it to uh, launch it? Is it to to distribute it? What what is it? What do you? What's the game? And then, by the way, once you have the outcome, either before or after, you better decide. Well, what's the very next thing? If I'm going to move on mom's birthday or get my tooth fixed or you know look into whether we should get divorced or not, what's the very next action I would need to take? What's the next? You know, and I mean very specifically. If you had nothing else to do but get finalization or move the needle on that. Where would you go and what physically, visibly would you do? Would you write an email? Would you surf the web? Would you have a conversation with a real person? Would you buy something at the hardware store? What's next? And those two things, the outcome and action decisions, are avoided by people about all kinds of stuff. If you look at most people's to-do list, anybody listening to this right now, if you want to just pull out your own to-do list, you'll see what I'm talking about. You've got stuff on there that you have not determined exactly what the very next step is. And you've got stuff on there you have not determined exactly what the final outcome you're committed to do is. Yeah, some of them you might have. But for the most part, you haven't. I know I've spent thousands of hours one-on-one sitting desk side with some of the best and brightest people on the planet you'd ever meet and walking them through that process about the stuff they have their attention on. And it's quite a, (laughs) to your point, it's when the world is really behind the, the eight ball in terms of that thought process. So it's really a... You know, one way to think about GTD and getting things done when we work with organizations, this one way to describe our deliverable is an installed thought process. What if you never started a meeting with that? What exactly are we trying to accomplish by what time today? And what if you never ended a discussion in those meetings without going, well, okay, excuse me, what did we just decide and what's the very next step on this thing? And who's got that? I guarantee you we've seen that change whole corporate cultures just by, just by building in that outcome and action lexicon or thought process. So, you know, people think GTD is kind of like a cult-like thing. No, it's not. It's just good business. You know, when you say the elegant simplicity of it, well, there's there's a big duh. If you don't decide what done means or what doing looks like, you're you're not getting things done. So uh, that you know, there's my rant. If you want one. I'm going to tie a few guests together here. We had a guy called Philip McKernan, who you may or may not know. He's a very successful coach out of Ireland. And i got to say, he was terrific on the show and got a great reaction from our audience. And one of the things he talked about is he said that busy is normally masking loneliness. And in hearing you talk, I'm just curious as to whether this is something you're seeing that could it be that even though there's a model that's proven, it's used by super successful people, it's been around... Could it be that even people who want, who have a desire to have the freedom, but they're kind of in their own mind intentionally staying busy because they're masking something? Is do you do you see that across the desk when you're sitting opposite successful people that they're almost staying busy to mask what's really going on for them? I think that's probably true for most everybody to some degree. Sure. I think busy, you know, busy is a, is a way to avoid 
uh, priorities as a way to avoid reflection, you know, and reflection time is really probably the biggest need out there, certainly in the leadership and executive levels. You know, most people don't stop and rest and think from a higher altitude and perspective. And so, you know, that's probably the cure for the busy trap uh, is, you know, we, we build it in sort of as a template, as we call it the weekly review. Once a week, you better take one to two hours and just hold the world back, you know, and don't, 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 don't do work. Don't listen. Don't answer your phone. Don't deal with email, but sit back and catch up you know, with your world and what's going on with it at, at all those different levels of commitment that you have. So, you know, it's the, the way out is through, you don't get, you don't, you don't solve the busy trap by simply meditating. You solve the busy trap by doing the process to define what all your commitments are and get clarity about what you need to do about them. Park res- reminders, those things in a trusted place so that some part of you truly can relax and can step back and not have to be in the busy trap yourself. You know, most people feel best about their job about a week before they go on a big holiday. You know, it's not about the holiday. They think it is. But what are you doing, guys, before you go on a big holiday? If you take a big holiday, you're cleaning up, you're clarifying, you're renegotiating agreements with yourself and everybody else so you can go play golf and and be free to do that or walk on the beach or do whatever you do. I just suggest people do that weekly, not yearly. So it's the same thing. Everybody knows what that game is. It's just that most people haven't built that in as a standard habitual practice. And uh, that gets you out of the busy trap faster than anything. Email, that busy trap, email must be one of the big barriers, one of the big technologies that are running interference on us. But I heard you use a term, you said you have the demilitarized zone for your email. Can you just run that for me? Well, I'm not sure exactly what I meant or what you mean when I say that. It, basically, it's, you know, email is just, I mean, I've been on email since 1983. You know, and, and God, my world wouldn't exist without email. It's a fabulous tool. If you know what you're doing, it's a great time to be alive. You know, my God, look, guys, we're talking to each other across the planet, you know, real time. And, you know, what a cool thing. So the technology is great. What's happened is the technology has it hasn't really been much of a game changer in technology since the word processor and the spreadsheet. Those were game changers, but everything else technology has done just add added volume and connectivity and speed. And so that's what's happened is now, now email, you know, what's piling up while the three of us are talking right now could totally change your priorities this afternoon. And, you know, that, that that's what's new is how frequently things are new and how frequently things potentially priority changing can be showing up through the digital inputs and connectivity that we all have. That's why GTD is, you know, just getting more and more traction around the world because it's a methodology that allows you to to deal with surprise and change much more elegantly and much more rapidly and with a lot more flexibility. So you just mentioned some people you sit across the desk from, and I want to drop a few names here and ask you a question about that. You have said that Howard Stern, Will Smith, uh, even Drew Carey, uh, who are super busy people, have all benefited from GTD. The question I've got is when people like that take it on, David, do they take it on 
as it is, or do they take it and then adapt it to their world and maybe plug in some other processes to it? Is it, is it an all or nothing, or you, do you sometimes suggest to them they adapt it to their world? Well, it's, it's highly adaptable to anybody's world. Uh, the basic principles of it are inviolate, and they, they will live forever. And there are actually very few people that do this 100%. Uh, you know, yes, your, your head's a crappy place. If you're trying to keep stuff in your head, that doesn't work. So that's, the, that's, that's a truth that's going to happen for anybody. So if any of these guys still keep stuff in their head, that's just to their own disadvantage. So, you know, depends on if customized means I'm going to keep a bunch of stuff in my head again, then I'd say eh, that's probably <laughs> not highly functional. Uh, but if you say, but, but get it out of your head, there's a six billion ways to do that. You know, so you can customize that. You want to carry a wallet with you. You want to record it. You want to have 12 people you pay enough to follow you around 24 seven and you just talk to them and have them capture it. I know any of that works. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways you can customize how you implement this, for sure. Uh, obviously, you know, a lot of the organization part is keeping track of the 100 to 150 next actions that most people actually have. And so, you know, having appropriate lists. So, you know, like I have an errands list. I have a list of stuff to talk to my wife about. I have a stuff of, of creative writing that I want to do. I have a list of stuff to do at the computer. I have a stu- list of stuff I need to do at the computer when I'm connected to the web. So I just keep separate kinds of lists, and those are all very easy for people to customize. Some people don't want all those different uh, kinds of lists. They want one or, you know, have several, you know, whatever. So there's lots of ways one can, you know, tweak and and customize the implementation of this methodology for sure. And back to your point, do these people do it? You know, I don't know. I don't follow them around enough. Probably everybody does (laughs) it enough to get back to whatever comfort that they were after. You know, a lot of people come to me and come to our work because they've fallen out of their comfort zone because they got promoted, they got fired, they bought a house, they sold their house, they got married, they got divorced, you know, yada, yada. You know, life happened to them and then they realized their system wasn't keeping up with, you know, as much as they wanted to keep up with. And they, they were feeling a lot more stressed and a lot more confused and a lot more overwhelmed than they liked. And so as soon as they get back to as much as they're, you know, are willing to tolerate, that's, that's probably as far as anybody's going to implement this. So I'm of two minds. I'd say if you're not going to, if you're not willing to do a hundred percent, don't bother doing any of it. It's too much work, you know? And, but if you're, but any little bit helps, you know, this is not running with scissors guys. You know, you just make a next action decision about something of 10 minutes before you normally would, you're going to improve your life. You just implement the two minute rule, as you guys may know, you know, just if once you come up with the next action, if you can actually take the action in two minutes or less, you ought to do it right then because it takes you longer to organize it and look at it again than to finish it. So those little things have changed people's lives. They would tell you that, just even little pieces of this. So, you know, none of this hurts. And none of it, you know, any part of it that you implement, if you just write a few more things down than you normally would, you're, you're going to be ahead of your game. Keep your sleep better if you keep a pen and paper by your bed. You know, so, you know, any and all of this works. So, I'm, again, I'm of both minds, you know, yeah, you implement as much as you want to get you back to whatever level of control that you feel like you you're comfortable with because most people don't really realize how how cool it could be if they actually had nothing on their mind it's a very cool place to operate from so when somebody like Ryder carroll talks about gtd and incorporates that into bullet journaling do you does it does it 
mean anything to you? Does it does it resonate with you? Is that a good thing? Do you how do you feel about all that when someone incorporates the process into their own process? Oh, it's fine. I mean, I, I it's you know it's kind of open source. I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't want the world just to be aware of you know these best practices. So however, whatever way people want to use it, just don't screw up my brand by pretending that it's GTD if it's not. You know, so you know that's the only thing I, I'm concerned about. People say, oh, I tried that GTD and it didn't work. Well, you didn't try the, <laughs> the real thing, you know. So, uh, so but, but people using this, I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't, you know, want people to take advantage of it in whatever form they want to do that. And, you know, bullet journaling is, is, is just a, a real, um, it's an informal way to just, you know, build your external brain, you know, get stuff out of your head. No kidding. Another great author, on the show, maybe last year, uh, Cal Newport, who wrote Deep Work, and I'm sure you're familiar with Cal and his work, he said on the show, focus is the new IQ. And it seems to me that GTD is a great model to give us greater focus in a world that seems overly distracted and unable to focus. Do you hear that a lot from whether it be super successful people you've mentioned and or the man on the street like us, do you find that an outcome from this is that people get much better focus, David? Sure. And it's also, you know, how to focus. So you could focus on an email called, oh God, this crappy, oh God, I don't know. That's a focus. You're focusing all the time if you're conscious. So learning how to focus, you're constantly focusing. You can't stop unless you go to sleep or, or die. Right, your fo- whatever you've got in your head is a focus. So learning, you know, how to clear the deck so you can focus more on what you want to focus on, the way you want to focus on it, is a lot of what GTD is about. You don't want to be, you know, if you're trying to do something and you're distracted, you know, that's that's a pretty obvious, you know, uh, lack of focus or den- denigration of your focus capability. So you want to get rid of distraction. So all you have to do, so GTD, is very practical, very immediate. Hey, what's on your mind? You know, while you guys have been talking to me, your head's probably gone someplace that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. Anybody listening to this, I'll be willing to bet you dollars to donuts <laughs> that that they've they've that you've had your mind, they've had their mind trail off into something that had nothing to do with what I were and I don't care about that. It doesn't bother me. But if what they were trying to do was trying to listen and to pay attention, and their mind then got you know, hijacked essentially by, oh God, I got to do that thing. Oh, I can't, I got to remember, oh gee, I forgot to, you know, daddy Anna's. That's all the stuff that usually that's banging around in people's heads. That's a distraction. And that's going to denigrate your ability to be able to be focused. You know, people complain about two or 300 emails a day. I say, you got 50,000 thoughts a day. You know, email is nothing compared to <laughs> what you're dealing with in your own head. Something I found curious when I, what I get to understand a bit more about David Allen is you said that you, growing up, you were a people pleaser. Yet when I listen to you, watch you, and try and understand the work and where you're coming from, that seems quite contrary to the impression that I'm getting because you, you, have, you have an opinion, you have a, an informed opinion, you live in Amsterdam because it works for you, you're not, you don't seem to be someone who tries to please others. That's just a persona or a perception I take on. Where are you with that now, David? Are, do you still feel as though you're a people pleaser? 
oh yeah, for sure. I just don't care anymore. And it's just fine. You know, that I love to please people. I like people to like what I do. I, you know, uh, conflict is not something that I take on easily or, or grapple with easily. I certainly, in my life, I think probably what may look like I'm not a people pleaser is that every once in a while I've taken some fairly big risks to go do something that, you know, just didn't seem to have any, uh, you know, it was just like running off the end of the pier and hoping the water wasn't too deep or too shallow, you know, when I ran off the end of it. You know, uh, so, you know, just, you know, sort of essentially creating a life that I wanted, but God, you know, come on, I was, I was 35 before I even figured out sort of what I thought I might want to do as a career, you know? And so, you know, I, I guess you, you know, as they say, you teach what you need to learn the most. So, you know, I was, you know, pretty much unfocused, didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't know how to sort of get in touch with the thing that tended to resonate with me. And I've always loved to, to assist people. That's always been sort of a part of what I did. And I think I've always thought of myself as, as an educator in a way, but it was just nice to run across stuff that I could educate people with that didn't hurt, <laughs> that, you know, did nothing but improve people's lives and conditions. So, you know, for the last 35, you know, 38 years since I did make that decision that I, you know, I just needed to go figure out some of these best practices, both for myself and start to share that with other people and hope, I came up with something that, that people would find valuable enough to be able to support my lifestyle. So I'm not a particularly aspirational, even entrepreneurial guy. I just, I'm really more of an educator and a researcher, you know, and I suppose a motivator in a way, but I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a motivational speaker. You know, I don't wake up as early as I can and go rah, rah and sis, boom, bah. You know, I sleep as long as I can. And I just like to have the kind of a, an, an easy lifestyle so that I'm comfortable you know, doing the things that I feel like doing. So, you know, I've been graced to have ultimately discovered something that, that was, you know, essentially as bulletproof and as valuable as getting things done as the model is. And, you know, back to your earlier point when we started this, um, you know, it's, it's <laughs> crazy simple stuff. You know, it's not like a foreign language or new technology. It's everybody already does these behaviors. There's nothing new that anybody really needs to learn. It's just how do you put them together and, and the way you put them together and for what purpose and how you organize and orchestrate that. That's something you're not born doing and it is something you can learn to do. And, you know, I've just been graced to have found something like that. So, you know, it, it is with huge amount of confidence simply because of the years of experience with thousands and thousands of people implementing this that I can come across with that level of confidence. What it's it's funny when you when you interview people, we're now going into our seventh season now, David, and I'm sure there are people who go, Well it's all right for you. You live in Amsterdam, you've got a successful writing career, you've got this system, people working for you. It's okay for you. But then you talk about the experience that you draw upon and something that I'm sure most people don't know that I found quite fascinating is that as part of your journey, you actually spent time in a mental institution. What, what, did the, what was the feeling like at that time? Like when you, when you were going through that period of your life, how did that feel? Uh, well, yeah, there's a, there's a gazillion answers to that. Um, First of all, it was it, it really happened because I sort of uncovered and discovered, you know, an inner life and parts of things that, you know, you could call mystical experiences or you could call them whatever you want. But they were 
unusual and transformative kinds of awarenesses and experiences that I couldn't, I couldn't place. I didn't know where they were coming from, where they came from, how to recreate them. But they certainly, uh, you know, uh, allowed me to certainly see the world in a whole different way and see the world, you know, in a sense, see a lot of truth of the world and truths about people that I hadn't seen before. And that was quite uncomfortable. Again, being a people pleaser, suddenly I found myself sort of off the end of the pier and very much, you know, out of sorts with both the world and anybody I knew and all the people that I knew. And I had no way to make sense out of all that. So, uh, you know, it was quite uncomfortable. It was quite traumatic, as a matter of fact, in many ways. And at a certain point, I just realized, okay, uh, you know, I kind of grabbed myself by my own bootstraps and lifted myself back out of it. Uh, as I say, I, you know, I'm not any less crazy. You're just looking at a higher state of cooperation here with, <laughs> with the world. So, uh, you know, it was really going through a lot of my own self-awareness and self-transformation that happened in my 20s. And, of course, come on, I was in, you know, in Berkeley in 68, 69, 70. This was in 70, 71 when that happened. That's like almost 50 years ago. Uh, but that was like heady time to be there. And that, that was when a whole lot of the personal growth movement and the self-awareness movement, all that was really starting and quite fertile. And I got very attracted into that world. And, you know, a lot of that's, you know, pretty strange stuff. And so trying to thread through all of that, make sense out of it. That was, you know, I, I, I'm delighted that I had the experience. It certainly gave me a, uh, you know, taught me a lot uh, about what I didn't have to be afraid of anymore. Uh, kind of like if you go, go off the edge of the peer too far and you can still stick around and then not a whole lot that really bothers me a whole lot anymore. So, uh, at least, uh, you know, in, in that way. So, you know, I don't wish it on anybody, but I, you know, I'm glad I went through the experience. Have you learned to trust your intuition, David? Because I know there is a spiritual, a spiritual, spiritual part of you, depending on how people term spiritual, but you have done, a lot of exploration into your own spiritual side, and we'll get on to Berkeley in a second. But through that period and getting to understand yourself, exploration, have you learned to trust your own internal intuition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've learned to trust. I've learned that that there's a, you know, essentially, I, as I call it, I've, I've sort of got my own inner committee, you know, and that I I know from real direct experience that that's not just me that there are other you know forces and powers that be that are you know uh, quite elegant and quite loving and quite uh, gracious and uh, and accessible essentially as a source of good information and good intuition but still you know a lot of my own teaching and learning is check it out you know i don't go i don't go buy into anything without checking it out but I do tend to trust an inkling or an inclinations that I have, and then I'll just start moving on it and then see if, if that leads to expansion or contraction. So I've got my own sort of internal barometers. If what I do and what I'm thinking about or where, wherever I put my attention or my activity, if it sort of leads to an expansive feeling, I say, that's a good thing. If it leads to, uh, I don't know, this, and I'm feeling contracted and, you know, and, and more defensive, then I say, that's probably not maybe the direction I ought to go in. But that's, it's an awful lot about experiencing and then just, you know, course correcting, you know, as needed. Do you GTD your intuitive thoughts? Thoughts come to mind. Do you GTD them by capturing and then deciding what you will do with them? Sometimes. 
Sometimes not. Sometimes I just let them float through and say, hey, that was a nice song. Wow. But I think, hey, that might be useful to use somewhere or somehow, or gee, I don't want to lose that because that would be a good article to write or a nice tweet to do or something like that. Then sure, I'll capture any of those. On your computer screen, you either have or did have let go. What's behind that personal message to yourself? Well, I think control is the master addiction, you know, for the human race. And so learning to let go actually lets you get more in control. So <laughs> that's a funny, it's a funny paradox. It's kind of like if you're willing to relax and, and sort of allow yourself to flow, it, you know, it's in the flow state that, that you could think about that. Uh, if you try too hard, if you hang on too hard, I mean, too controlled is out of control. Uh, you know, so you need to be flexible. You need to be open. You need to be, uh, you know, don't hang on to something that you need to let go of and being open to whatever that, you know, current reality is. And so, you know, my whole lifestyle, my whole work style, our business style, all of that is really based on, you know, a lot of best practices about don't, you know, don't, uh, don't overstructure, you know, because then you're not, you're not ready for change that may happen or for, you know, the intuitive serendipities, you know, which is where a lot of cool stuff shows up. We had former Navy SEAL, and a very successful podcaster, Jocko Willink, on the show recently, David, and one of his favourite sayings is discipline equals freedom. Towards the end of the show, I asked Jocko about the dichotomy of discipline leading to freedom. And then when I was thinking about spending time with you, it seems that having the discipline to use the GTD model actually then gives you the freedom to do whatever, whether it's having a beer, writing a book, or spending time with a loved one. There, there is real power in that, isn't it? That the GTD is a tool, to, to, if used properly with discipline, to give us the freedom, which you mentioned at the head of the show. Yeah. No, I'd say so. I just don't like the word discipline. It just sounds like too much work. You know, I like the word direction. You can direct. It doesn't, you don't break a sweat by deciding the next action on, a, on an email. But you need to direct yourself to do that. You have to direct your focus. Back to the focus point, it's directing your focus appropriately. You know, are you thinking about? The, are you making the right decisions about stuff? And so, you know, once you've trained yourself to do that, then those things become a whole lot easier. And yes, I would agree. Certainly, the way most people think about discipline. You know, I, to me, one of the you know great analogies or examples would be the French chefs, where they talk about mise en place. I mean, before they ring the bell. Everything had better be in place. They better have all the food, all the ingredients, all the pots and pans, everything ready because it's going to get nuts. It's going to get crazy. Back to my point, you're most creative when you have the freedom to make a mess. But if you're in a mess, you can't make one. So when I'm not, you know, I'm, whenever I'm not doing anything else, I'm cleaning up uh, because there's a surprise coming toward me I can't see. And when that hits, I want the smallest amount of backlog of unclarified, unprocessed, unorganized stuff that I can have so that I'm most free to then take advantage of that. So yes, to that point, the, the, the degree to which you then implement the getting things done methodology uh, provides a whole lot more freedom and space to do the things you want to do the way you want to do them and feel good about it. As I say, you can only feel good about what you're not doing when you know what you're not doing. Most people don't have a clue. And if you actually implemented the real GTD process, you could glance at any 30 seconds or 60 seconds and look at every single thing you're not doing. And that's a great place to come from. Uh, most people don't even want to look. And so 
they just wound up being driven by that, you know, sort of ambient anxiety. Good word, ambient anxiety. So are you saying in your mind you feel more comfortable saying direction equals freedom? Yeah. Direct yourself appropriately. Yeah. That'll be a T-shirt by Monday, mate. (laughs) There you go. Sure. Say you are standing on the stage at the GTD Global Summit, which is a big event that you uh, run and are part of with your organisation. Do you find that when you look out at the audience in a GTD Global Summit, you have got this big crowd in front of you with everybody writing things down? Because I'd be curious, I find it fascinating how people will pay good money and give their most precious commodity, which is their time, to go to an event, listen to world-class keynote speakers and then write nothing down, which goes right back to we started the show as we, we trust our minds as a, as a storage cabinet for our stuff. That's, that's what's common. Is your event uncommon where people are actually applying the stuff you teach and just doing pages of, of notes and things they want to execute? Well, I'm not sure that that's exactly executing on GTD. I, many times I just sit in an event and what I want to do is let, is let it wash through me and over me. As a matter of fact, a good friend of mine, Mark Tichelar, teaches a lot now about the best way for your mind to work. And you know his recommendation, which I think actually has a lot of merit to it, is that when you're listening to a lecture or you're enjoying something, maybe listening to this podcast, that you don't try to write down things, that you actually just follow along with it. Because if you stop to write, you'll lose the track of what's going on. He says the best thing to do is once you end it, to then write what you remember. And that that's the best thing if you really wanted to remember and recall any of this. But, you know, GTD doesn't mean you write everything down. Hell, I've got 50,000 thoughts a day. I'm not writing anything to write down right now. A lot of times I'm just grazing. I'm just sort of enjoying where my mind is going and what it's looking at and what it's thinking about. It's only when something occurs to me that I might want to decide or do something about later, not in the moment. That's what I need to then grab. And that, you know, yes, so I had 700 people sitting in the auditorium in the, at the GTD summit, and most everybody had a tool for writing down. I don't know that any of them, that they wrote down everything. I don't, I don't think that would be necessarily the best thing to do. I guess the question then is whether you are disciplined enough to finish when the event or the speech is over to then capture the stuff that you do think is worth capturing and that would be a discipline and or a direction in itself, wouldn't it? Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. The sort of processing and debriefing, very good thing to do about any, any kind of event that has significance for you. Uh, this has been fantastic. I, I find you fascinating, David. I would, I could sit and talk with you for hours. It would be remiss of me not to ask you and take you back to your time at Berkeley University back in the 60s, and it was Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Tell me the song that is the soundtrack to the journey that David Allen has had to this point. If there's a song I could play that ex- expresses the journey of you as a man, the journey you've had hailing back to those time, those halcyon times of Berkeley University, what would I play you? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> Let me see. Um... You know, as strange as this may sound, what pops into my head is bread. <laughs> if, a world, if, if a man could be two places at one time, I'd be with you. I want to make it with you. We have never had anybody on the show <laughs> bring up bread before. That's gold. Absolutely gold. 
David, I, I do find you absolutely fascinating. My wife was the first person to introduce me to GTD, uh, the, the, the older version and the newer version. Uh, I, I so enjoy your work. I so enjoy your philosophies on how you see things. People who will want to find out more about getting things done and you, where is the hub for you, your work and the books? Gettingthingsdone.com. And we don't sell the books ourselves. So you know, you know, please take advantage of your local bookstores. I always like to support the local bookstores. I think that's a great institution. So yes, so you can find, you know, all of my books or order them certainly from wherever you buy good books. That's, and you know, if you go to our website, uh, we don't deliver much anymore ourselves in terms of training and coaching, but we've have licensees all around the world who do. So wherever you are in the world, you can look at, look that up and see who in your territory is doing public seminars and maybe even coaching and, and trainings around this material. So we've certified the master trainers in all of these regions. So, you know, we know the quality is really good. Just, just one very final question. This came from a listener who knew we were going to be speaking with you today. Where's the intersection between getting things done, GTD, and the agile workplace philosophies? Is there an intersection? Well, I, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an expert in lean, agile, scrum, all that stuff. I just certainly know a whole lot of people that are big GTD fans who are big in those worlds. And, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, crossover, I think, between them. Uh, so, you know, again, the flexibility of it. Uh, so for the, the, all of those, all of those really deal with more of an external workflow itself and have great value. But as someone described it, actually, a guy who runs the Lean Institute in California, he described GTD as lean for the brain. In other words, no waste internally inside of there. So the GTD process is more about your internal process and making that agile and scrum and, you know, and sprinting and doing all that, all that good stuff. That's more of an internal process. And certainly with people who are engaged in all of those, in any of those activities, they still personally have to walk away from that agile meeting or that scrum meeting or that sprint with deciding themselves what they are going to do about it. And uh, those processes don't, (laughs) they may help a little bit, they may give you some good, you know, material, but still individuals have to then implement their own execution on whatever those things mean for them. And so, yeah, no argument with any of them. Good stuff. So there is an intersection and it could w- be a worthwhile model mm-hmm. for someone to adopt in their own personal yeah, somebody world. Somebody told me that, that, world that, in the, conjunction agile, with- that, that, that the first agile, that the first agile instruction manual was written the same year getting things done was 2001. So probably interesting parallels. Wow, that's great. Well, thank you, mate. I, I respect your time. This has been terrific. There's, I could spend another couple of hours on the line with you. I've got a, a bunch of stuff that I could ask you about, but uh, it's been a real privilege. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. This was fun. Hi, I'm Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and I specialize in muscle-centric medicine, nutritional sciences, and metabolism. Eat it, eat it, eat it. You know, I know a lot about food, but I am not sure what I just got fed from Mojo Radio. I would say three episodes in, that's got to be the strongest start to a series we've ever had so far, and the hits just keep on coming. Yeah, well, I thought he'd be good because we've talked about this before, and it's a well-known fuck, Sonny Jim, that you struggle with your getting things done, your planning, 
are staying on top of things with all that goes on around the studio. So I thought that show would be really appropriate for you to sit back and have listened to the guru of it, but also for all of us is that we are always looking for... The thing I liked about David Allen was it wasn't about, say, getting things done in order to save time, to make time, to get more things done. When you talk to David about making that time up and getting things done effectively, the right things, the right time, getting them off your list, then you go, what are you going to do with your time? He goes, well, I may do nothing. I may go for a beer. I may sit and think. I may paint. That's the nice thing about, I think, the philosophy of what he's doing is it's not about this. It goes to be the whole thing about time management, but it was manage your time in order to get more stuff you could cram into it, which is why I think we're in such a mess at the moment. So I, um, it was quite a, quite a get getting him because he doesn't do a lot of shows. Mm. So, so far we've, did, we've done getting things done this week. Last week we did creativity. Week one, being uncommon, doing things differently. What's next week? Anything? Got another one up your sleeve or are we going somewhere else? No, we've got a cracker again next week, which I'll, uh, I don't think I'll share just yet, but I've got to say I think for the next six to eight weeks it's just back-to-back hits, or as they say, back-to-back gold, as they say in the industry. Ah, well, there you go. Just before we wrap this little shindig up, AP, what's with the mask? I've noticed this. Why Why is AP wearing a mask in the voiceover box? What's going on, mate? Why am I wearing a mask? Well, the question is, what have you been eating? Ha, ha, ha. No, I, <laughs> uh, I, I think, think you're, you're okay bit- here, mate. There are no coronas <laughs> in the fridge. There's no coronas in the fridge, so the coronavirus is... Like, you don't, you don't actually hear anybody go, hey, I got the Dos Equis virus. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we're good to go. We only have Dos Equis here in the fridge. Mind you, yeah. I've got to say... Uh, being at a motorsport event recently up on the hill with some good old boys. Next morning, there certainly was a VB virus going around because there were some very <laughs> sick young fellas next day. But uh, I think oh, you're okay. Dear. I think you're okay, AP. Yeah. You know when you'd be in trouble if there was a mission corn chip virus? Then you'd Ooh, be in trouble. Wouldn't that be? That'd, that'd be terrible if they, if they withdrew <laughs> all mission corn chips off the shelves. <laughs> Man, you'd have to you'd yeah. have to be one of those doomsdays that got your, your pantry stocked. Yeah, it would save me some vacuuming in the studio when you're gone, though. The Mojo Radio Show. All right, so to take us out, uh, we talked about the '60s because David was a child of Berkeley University back in the day, yeah. and any child. Anyone who does their research on David will know that he was a tad wild back in the day in his Berkeley days, which he's open about, and. I thought, Lola, why don't we run some 60s to take us out? So why don't you roll Berkeley University, 60s, <laughs> music, sex, drugs and rock and roll. What have you got? How's this one? Used to be my life was just emotions passing by. Lola. I'm not sure bread is sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but nice try. <laughs> I think that's the only bread song I know. I want to make it with you, but it's not. I mean, look, yeah. it's good. It is 60s. It ties back to David, but that's not really us. What else have you got? It's getting closer. I love Stephen Wolf. Yeah, Magic Carpet Ride. I do like that song, but I still... You know what You know what we're missing here, Gary? You know what we're really missing here? 
cowbell. What do you got, Lola? <laughs> of course. Oh. <laughs> that actually, I think that was either number one or number two on the cowbell hit list, if I remember correctly. So that's good. Yeah. Should we play out with Cowbell or do you want to get Lola to hit one more track? Okay, let's roll the dice. What are you going to roll with? One word. Hendrix. (laughs) Well, how can I argue with that? We're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.